All right, today what I want to do is I want to share with you some very weighty words, extremely weighty words. These are the last words of the Apostle Paul. And those words are found in 2 Timothy. And I think 2 Timothy should be fresh on your mind if you were here for Wednesday night Bible studies because Ronnie covered 2 Timothy chapter by chapter a few weeks ago. And so I just pray that this will be an encouragement to go back and, and rejoice in what you learned there this morning. But it's, it's an interesting book. It's unique in, in the pastoral epistles. Um, the tone of the Apostle Paul's voice in this pastoral is far different from that in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, we see him speaking with pastoral instruction. Okay, It's a pastorally instructive letter. But in 2 Timothy, it's a personally intimate letter given to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. But in that regard, as it being a, a personally intimate letter, it, it, I think is a in a way, a broader letter in the way it's applied. I think it actually applies to all of Christ's servants, whether they're pastors or not, okay? So it's not just for pastors in this sense. And I think that's important to keep in mind because he's writing in this letter to basically encourage and, and remind Timothy and all of Christ's servants of the calling that God has placed upon their life to serve and be a witness for Jesus in this world and serve the church. And, and so basically, that's what I hope to do this morning. I want to encourage all of Christ's servants here on how to carry out your calling. And as you'll see today in the, the last words of the Apostle Paul, we are to bring Christ glory, bring God glory tenderly as we fellowship with one another, personally as we fellowship with one another, and realistically as we fellowship, and biblically as we interact as a church. Those are the personal words that you begin to hear as you look at 2 Timothy. These, these personal words are given to edify, to equip, to encourage all of the servants of Christ that would come from Timothy onward okay, to today. And what's interesting about this and what this makes this book so unique is the personal tone that we see in it, that we hear in it. These words of personal encouragement to Christ's servants, they flow out of a man who didn't even consider himself worthy of being such a servant himself. As, as you look at Paul's life, you, you see humility marking him from the very beginning to the very end, which I think is phenomenal. I pray that that would be the testimony of every servant of Christ here today. Before we actually get into the words of this servant, I, I do want to uh, take you through something. The first half of my message will be something like an equipping hour again for you, okay? I want to take you through the life of Paul quickly. If I can, I want to talk about his life because because Paul's life, his story is is unique, as you all know. Yet at the same time, in many ways, his story is no different than your story. If you are a Christian, the story of the Apostle Paul's life is a story of redemption. And it's also a good reminder to those who don't feel worthy to be Christ's servants. It's a good reminder that no one is beyond the saving grace and restoring power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's life reminds us of that. It reminds us that, that God loves to save those who look unsavable and to restore those who look unrestorable. We see that evidence in this epistle and in Paul's historic testimony. Paul's life before he was a Christian was interesting. It was a life filled with religious zeal. 
It was a life filled with violence. It was a life filled with hatred of Christians. And if you look at his life, you'd think his conversion looks impossible. His usefulness in the future looks unrealistic. But Jesus stepped in and changed the man that we now know as Paul from this persecutor named Saul. And he can do that in our lives as well. We look like we can't be redeemed. We look like we can't be restored. God can step in and transform in a heartbeat. The man Paul was actually, as you all probably know, born and named Saul. And at the age of 13 years old, he was a man. And Saul then was sent to Palestine to basically learn from a rabbi named Gamaliel. And he sat under Gamaliel for a a number of years. And under Gamaliel, he mastered Jewish history. He mastered Jewish theology. He mastered the Psalms. He mastered the prophets. He mastered the scriptures of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And, And that fueled him for his present, at that time, present work that he would be doing. And it fueled him with great zeal. And it was that zeal for that faith that led him down what we would consider now a path of religious extremism. If you will, he was a spiritual terrorist of the church. And this extremism led Saul to the place where he would stand as Stephen is being stoned to death in Acts 7. And Paul would be standing there not just as a bypasser, but he's standing there holding the garments of those who would throw the stones and he was giving his approval to it. He was condoning it. And he was encouraging it. And, and what's interesting about Stephen's account in Acts 7 is, I think that God used that account to work in Paul's heart to eventually bring him to a saving knowledge of Christ on the road to Damascus. I think that as Stephen is being stoned, we all know this, that he was hearing a gospel message preached from the Old Testament And that gospel message was coming from a man who was dying because he loved Jesus so much and willing to give his life so that others would know him as well. And I think that 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 testimony that that Saul heard that day as Stephen is dying, I don't think that testimony ever left Paul's heart. He testifies to it again at the end of Acts and how important it was in his own conversion. And, And I think that that testimony echoed in his ears Every day until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. But before he met Jesus on that road, there was still a lot of evil things that he would be doing. You've got to remember how vicious he was. He was a violent man. He was violent for his faith. That's the most violent kind of man you can ever encounter. He was a violent persecutor of Christians. We see that in Acts 8, 3. I'll read this to you. It says this, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Could you imagine what that would look like today? You're gathering for fellowship. You're gathering to hear the word of God. You're gathering for communion. And Saul and his military force, if you will, bust in the door. They grab mom and they grab dad and they drag them, literally drag them out the door with the children crying behind them. And the parents knowing this may be the last time they see them. 
because he was dragging them to prison, and that prison would generally lead to their persecution and death. This is what kind of man God chose to save and make an ambassador for Christ. Before he was saved, as I said, he was a violent persecutor. But understand who he was persecuting. He was persecuting Jesus' bride. Jesus takes that personally. And so he intervened. And he intervened in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. And on that road, something miraculous happened to Saul. And I think that we can all rejoice that it happened because because of Saul, most of us are Christians here today. Because of the things that we've read in Romans or in Ephesians or in Galatians or in Timothy. Jesus stepped in that day to radically rescue this man who was living a life of self-righteousness and on a path to destruction. That just shows us the grace of our God, doesn't it? He intervenes. Not to just simply stop him, but to redeem him. And when he did, the Apostle Paul that we know now today rejoiced when his eyes were finally opened. Because he had been radically transformed from the inside out. In his Judaism, he was trying to be transformed from the outside in and it never worked. It was rubbish. When Christ Christ intervened, it changed him from the inside out. I think we should all meditate and think on that. That's how he works in us. It may be progressive, and it is. It may not all be seen at once, and it won't, but he's at work. He's at work reconciling and redeeming and perfecting and sanctifying us from the inside out because he is a good and gracious Savior of sinners. Now, let's look real quickly at what happened there in Acts 9, just so you have a historic background Look in Acts 9, 1 to 6, and then we'll jump down and look at 10 to 20. And I want to read this because I believe that God's word is worthy of being read, and we should rejoice in this revelation. And in 1 to 6, it says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember, he's persecuting the church. Jesus takes this personally. And he said, who are you, Lord? And He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Then go on down to verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, 
I would be with Ananias, all right? I mean, I'm just going to tell you. Are you sure this is the right guy? Or you got the right guy? I'm not sure. I'm going to, you know, this is not going to turn out well for me. But in God's grace, he even worked through the fears of Ananias, didn't he? Verse 15 says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and notice verse 20 and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. That was a miracle. That's amazing. That's a radical change. Here, a few days earlier, we have Saul the persecutor, and now we have Paul the proclaimer of Jesus. The persecutor of the church is now the proclaimer of the truth about Christ. He's immediately transformed, and he's boldly declaring the truth about Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplished and what he can do to self-righteous sinners like himself. And we see the evidence of his transforming grace in Paul's life, throughout Paul's life. We see it both in Scripture and we see it in the historical things that he accomplished. Both testify to the power of Christ that was at work in the Apostle Paul's life. And just listen to some of this and, and be amazed at, at what God's grace can do in the life of those that he saves. Now again, Paul had a unique ministry, we know that. But I want you to see it was the work of Christ in his heart and the power of God's grace that empowered him for this. And, and his life is a testimony to the power of the gospel. During his life, the Apostle Paul made three known missionary journeys, possibly four. These are dangerous journeys. These are difficult journeys. He planted multiple churches. He refuted false teachers constantly as he planted churches. It was a relentless battle for the truth in his life. He made multiple disciples amidst the battle. Even though he's fighting off false teachers, he's trying to plant churches, going on missionary journeys, he's still able to make many disciples, even in the midst of all the difficulty and all the suffering. But the greatest thing that God did through the Apostle Paul was not those things I just listed. The greatest thing that God did, and we benefit from today, is God used the Apostle Paul to write 13 letters of the New Testament. Amidst all of this, the church planting, the refuting of false teachers, making of disciples, the missionary journeys, God is taking his grace and fueling and equipping Paul to continue glorifying Jesus through these inspired letters that we hold in our hands today. And we should rejoice in those truths when you think about how they came to us. You can see throughout Paul's life that he was dedicated to proclaiming the gospel no matter what it cost him personally. He did that because he wanted to equip the saints. He wanted to edify the church. He wanted to encourage the weary. And he's doing that in 2 Timothy, with Timothy and with us. During his ministry, you have to think about what happened to him and be amazed 
that he could even persevere through all these things and still end up doing all these great accomplishments by God's grace. During his ministry, I mean, this doesn't sound like my ministry. It doesn't sound like Ronnie's ministry. It doesn't sound like Justin or Paul, any of us. Lord, it just doesn't sound anything like the ministry that we encounter. And I'm sort of glad in some ways, but I'm also disappointed in myself that I'm not persecuted more for preaching the truth. The Apostle Paul was stoned multiple times. One time he was stoned and left for dead. He possibly died. We don't know. But he was stoned. Now, when they stoned a person in that time period, they would take stones generally the size of your head and throw them upon you until they bury you in the rubble. He was stoned for Jesus, beaten with rods multiple times. He was whipped, scourged at least 195 times in his lifetime just for preaching Jesus, just for preaching the word of God. When you looked at the Apostle Paul, you understood that he literally bore the marks of Christ on his body. When you looked upon his back, you could literally see a gospel track tracing the love that he had for Jesus from one scar to the other. And yet he persevered. He persevered through shipwreck. He persevered through imprisonment. He persevered through impoverishment. All for the sake of Jesus. He could have abandoned all the truth and had a comfortable life. But he said, no, Jesus is worth my suffering. That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Is Jesus worth our suffering? The answer is yes. The Apostle Paul's life screams out yes. But what I find really amazing about this is not the fact that he was beaten so often that he was impoverished that he was struggling physically so many times but that in the midst of all that suffering and all the things he wrote 13 letters you never find any personal complaints about the hardships and the pains he might allude to the fact that they're there but he doesn't complain all you hear are praises to god for allowing him to suffer for christ's sake i pray that that would be my testimony one day There's no hints of disappointment. There's no regret over having been crucified with Christ. There's no complaints about loneliness because he's alone in the work. There's no complaints about the lack of wealth, the suffering he faced. There's just persistent amazement over the fact that God would choose the chief of sinners to proclaim the riches of Christ. That's humbling. If it doesn't humble you, I beg you to repent and to consider, consider the Apostle Paul's life as a testimony to how much Jesus is worth. I think that Paul's last words, his testimony, are highly important to us as Christians, especially when you consider that in Second Timothy, when we read that, we're reading the, the famous last words of Paul, and they're not written from a comfortable pastoral desk. These famous last words of Paul were written in a Roman dungeon. And Paul was still there doing what he's done in all these letters, praising God and seeking ways to serve others. 
And think about it. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your sorrow, are you still praising God and thinking about ways that you can see God's hand working through this so that you can help others, serve others? That's what a servant of Christ should be looking for. And oftentimes we don't. Because we don't consider the weightiness of the one who suffered before us. But here, even in his own testimony, Paul is saying Jesus is worth it. Even in this dungeon, even in the darkest moment of his life, he's there trying to find ways to, to glorify Jesus and equip and encourage the saints. Basically, what you see going on in Paul's life when he's writing this letter is the outward expression of Philippians 1.20, what he says there, which is this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We see that being lived out as he's writing these very words to Timothy in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, we learn that Paul is imprisoned for the obvious reason for preaching the gospel once again. And, and at this time, though, it's not like the other imprisonments. The other imprisonments allowed him to have some freedom, have some interaction with people, not this one. He's virtually cut off from all of his friends, all those people who would be there to fellowship with him and encourage him. He's kept in a dungeon. It's a place called the Mamertine Prison. It's literally a pit, literally a pit. And the prisoners were thrown down into this pit through a small hole just big enough to get your shoulders through. They were thrown down into this pit in the floor and understand this, this, this was not your average prison. This was a dark, dank death chamber. That's what it was. It was about half the size of a small one-car garage. And at times, they would house at least 40 prisoners in that one space. And you could just imagine what that would smell like, what that would feel like, how frightening it would be. The cell was built under the city sewer system. And that was by design. It was put there so that whenever the cell became too full of prisoners awaiting execution, they went ahead and executed them right then by dumping the sewage into the cell and drowning them. This is where the Apostle Paul writes Second Timothy. It was in this dreaded cell that has the overpowering stench of death and depression that he writes some of the most beautiful words about encouragement you've ever read. His last words to Timothy and to us. After he wrote this, not very long after he wrote this letter, we know historically that the Apostle Paul was taken out of that prison for one last walk, probably outside the city, to be, to be executed, to have his head cut off with a sword for Christ. But what's great about that story is he was finally free from the prison of this flesh. And he was able to go home to be with Jesus. And the prison guards brought the key. And they set him free. Paul knew his death was imminent. He knew it was coming. That's why he wrote this letter in such a passionate tone to Timothy. And he, he wrote it because he wanted to encourage this weak man and I think that it still applies to us in that way today. He, he uses these words to encourage the weary saints, the weary servants of Christ. And that's what I think makes these words, again, so weighty and so precious and powerful to us. And what's even greater, I think, to me, is when you read it and you get to the end of it, 
you realize that even as the Apostle Paul faced his own death, he's singing a victory song all the way to the end. May that be our testimony as well. John MacArthur put it this way. Paul faced his own death with a triumphant spirit and with a deep sense of joy. He had seen the grace of God accomplish all that God designed in him and through him, and now he was ready to meet Christ face to face. Saints, Paul wrote this letter to encourage us, as he was encouraging Timothy, to be bold and be courageous for the sake of Jesus, no matter what it costs you. No matter how difficult it will be, follow my example is what he's telling Timothy. And that's what he's telling us. And I hope that these last words that we'll look at today will encourage you to do just that. I think these words are important and helpful for us to do that. I think these words here in Timothy, 2 Timothy, remind us that God can take broken people like Saul and like us and turn them into vessels of grace. That can be used in mighty ways to spread the gospel of Christ. No matter what our past was like. No matter what our current circumstances are. If God has chosen us. He's going to work through us. And God always chooses broken vessels. Because that's all there are. He works through the broken. So that he can get the praise. And that's what we see in Paul. So I pray that these famous last words will encourage you in that way. And equip you as Christ's servants today. So here's what we're going to do. It's going to be a little bit of a survey. I just want to point out four practical lessons from Paul's last words. In chapters 1 to 4, we learn that Paul's last words were full of, number one, tender correction. They were full of personal motivation. And they were full of realistic expectations. And they were full of biblical convictions. Now, these, these principles that we see here, these four principles, they're, they're throughout the letter. As you read through it, I hope you can discern it. And, and these four principles apply to not just pastors, but to all of Christ's servants. These, these last words are an example to us of how every Christian should minister to others in the body of Christ. We're to minister with tender correction. We're to minister with personal motivation. We're to minister with realistic expectations because some people are going to fail. We are to minister with biblical convictions. That should drive it. Okay, All these things should be cultivated in our life and our work as servants of Jesus. So let's, let's first of all look at chapter 1. In chapter 1, we learn that Paul's last words were full of, number one, tender correction. And we hear those words in verses 3 to 7. And I'll read those in just a moment here. Um, Paul's approach to correction is important here. Very important. Ronnie got onto it a little bit this morning, got into it a little bit this morning. Um, Paul's approach to correction starts off with Paul saying, hey, Timothy, don't forget your spiritual adoption. Don't forget you're my spiritual son in the faith. I love you, Timothy. I love you. That's why I'm going to write these hard things to you. But I love you. I view you as my son. He's basically correcting Timothy like a loving father speaks to his dear son. And so I hope that we can kind of follow that example, that we can learn from this example, learn how to express tender correction in the body of Christ. We need that. 
you know, we live in a time period where you guys, younger guys anyway, especially, think that, you know, we've got to be real, man. You know, we've got to be authentic. And authentic means just being a jerk and saying what you think when it comes out of your mouth. That's not authentic. That's just rude. Okay? Learning how to bring tender correction is a spirit-empowered gift. Look at verses 3 to 7. Just, just the tone is this pastoral and this personal, loving father to a, a dear son kind of tone. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Oh, Timothy, I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying for you, son. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. The, the tears are in reference to being ripped apart from Timothy on the last time, the last ministry journey they had together. And they, they were separated. And here they are now in two different locations. He says, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, or the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, implied in verses 6 and 7 is that Timothy was timid. Timothy was backing away. Timothy is not fanning the flame of the gift. And does he come in and say, Timothy, you're a lousy preacher and a horrible pastor. You need to straighten up. That's not what he does at all. He comes in with this, this beautiful example of loving correction. First, first, he edifies Timothy personally before he corrects him. You see that here. He, he points out his own personal love for Timothy, saying, I, I remember your tears, son. I remember your faith is real. I saw the work of God in you. But, but, here's the corrective. But you need to stoke it up. You need to stir it up. It's not what it ought to be. It's not what it can be. So stir it up. That's the corrective. And he doesn't end with the corrective. He goes on to give encouragement. He says, look, I, I, I'm going to give you some hope. I see, I see God's spirit at work in you. That spirit that, that brought you salvation, that same spirit is at work in you to remove fear and intimidation here. He'll empower you. Take heart, son. Take heart. I mean, Paul's, Paul's words here serve as a great example for us. Because they show us how to deal with the weak and the weary among us. We all become weak and weary. You know, as you progressively are sanctified by God's grace, you go through times of weak and weariness. Weakness and weariness. It's going to be a part of your Christian life. I'm sorry to tell you that. That's just the way it's going to be. And at those times, you don't need people coming to you and beating you down and pointing out your errors. You need people coming to you and saying, brother, I see the work of God he started in you. And I see the work that he's going to complete because this is what he's promised. And I see evidences of that in your life. Understand, it's not just helpful for us. And Ronnie did a great job this morning pointing this out. It's not helpful for us just to point out the weaknesses in others. If we're not willing to help them find a solution to it personally. If we're not willing to come alongside them and help them carry their burden, pointing out their burden doesn't help them at all. You need to be plugged into their life. So they receive what you're saying as tender correction. 
That's what Paul is giving to Timothy. I don't think that when Timothy, Timothy read this, I don't think he could put this letter down. Listen, if anybody knew that Timothy's heart was growing cold or was weak or he was you know, fearful, Timothy knew it. And when he read that, he was, he was I'm sure, weeping. Oh, Paul, this is, this is your love for me, telling me the truth. I don't want to hear it, but I need it. Thank you for showing me that. And thank you for giving me hope in it, that the Spirit is at work in me. We all need this kind of tender correction. And he received it from a man who loved him unto death. Even as he's writing these last words, he knows he's dying. But all he can think about is how to help Timothy. And, and we receive this kind of correction, I think, this tender correction, um, when it comes from someone who is genuine. We receive it best when it comes to us in tenderness because they've already invested their life in us. We'll receive the hard things from people. If we know that they love us, Richard Baxter said, basically in preaching, he said, you know, preach as hard as you need to. But make sure the people love you. If they don't love you, they won't listen to you. Make sure that you're not just pontificating from a pulpit, as Spurgeon would call this, the coward's castle, pointing out your problems, but never coming alongside to help carry your burdens. Be careful as you correct to, to make sure you're first investing in their lives, as Paul was doing here. Here in 113, he shows us how to do it. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's showing us here how to express tender correction, I think, practically here. He's saying, look, apply the sound doctrine that you are now first applying to your own life. Take it and share it with others personally, knowing that it's humbled you, knowing that it has, has done a great work to transform you. You come with brokenness to them and you give them correction. Sound words that change you will change them as well if you are humbled by these words personally. He's saying, look, if, if you learn to do it this way, they're going to they're gonna lovingly accept the correction you bring to them. And helping a, a correct a, a sinning brother is the most loving thing that we can do as Christians if we learn to personally offer them the help that they need, not just point it out. You look, you'll never have an opportunity to really serve people in this way. Just be, be real here with yourself. You'll never have an opportunity to serve people this way if you're not getting invested in their lives personally. All right? Showing up at church on Sunday morning and Wednesday night in the door, out the door, never interacting, never fellowshipping, you'll never have this opportunity. You may see problems, you may see errors, but you can't come to that person with love because they look at you as this Pharisee type. All you're going to do is criticize me. You're not coming in to help me with it. You don't even care about me. You don't even talk to me on a Sunday morning. You're going to have to weave your life into theirs if you want to be able to do this in a way that benefits the body. Benefits the body, brings glory to God. They need to know that this correction is coming from real love in your heart for them. Now, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy, we learn that Paul's last words were also full of personal motivation. And we can see that in verses 1 to 10. I'll read that again in a moment here. But you have to understand that Paul's motive for personal correction here um, wasn't really about Timothy. 
It wasn't really mainly about Timothy. It was the church that he was concerned about. He, he's giving this personal motivating words to Timothy here to help him understand that it's the church's spiritual preservation and protection that needs to be preeminent in Timothy's life. And so what he does is he's going to come here and he's going to say some really extremely hard words to Timothy about his ministry. And he's going to motivate him by pointing to Jesus and pointing to his own life. And he's going to say, look, there's something at stake here that's bigger than you. It's Jesus and it's his people. He, he comes in and says things to Timothy that we don't like to hear. He says things to Timothy like, hey, guy, you're not really very disciplined. You need to grow up. That's what he's saying. You need to set your mind on the big picture, not just for your sake, but for the sake of the church, for the preservation of the saints, for the protection of the body of Christ. Look at verses one to seven. You can see that motivation there in action. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Then he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Don't focus on yourself. That's what he's saying. Three and four. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, I think this is a very subtle corrective, a subtle um, innuendos being brought to this. Like, basically, dude, you're lazy. You're giving up too soon. You're feeling sorry for yourself. You've got to be like this you got to be like this soldier. You've got to be like this athlete. You've got to be like this hardworking farmer. Think about what I'm saying here, Timothy. You know I'm telling you to do hard things. But you've got to do it for the sake of the body of Christ. He's basically saying, hey, Timothy, I need to give you some motivation to persevere in your ministry. I need to give you some motivation so that you'll go back to working the field around you. Keep running the race faithfully. Stop feeling sorry for yourself because things aren't going your way and it's hard. You need to be able to suffer like a good soldier to serve others. And then he says something very interesting in verses 8 to 10. Look at this. Remember Jesus Christ. I don't think Timothy had forgotten Jesus. Why does he say that there? He's talking about being willing to suffer for the sake of the church. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached by my gospel or in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God's not bound. Therefore, I endure for the sake of the elect. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Timothy, it's not about you. Suffering is not about you. It's about Jesus and the, the good and the preservation of the church. He's saying, Timothy, you've got to learn to do the hard things as a servant of Christ. And then he says it in this way in the latter half of that. By the way, Timothy, I hope you can see that's what Jesus did for us. And I hope that you can see that that's who I'm trying to follow personally. I'm trying to follow his example. And that's why I'm charging you to now follow mine. Think about this for a second. 
Timothy probably read through the first nine verses of this, saying, Oh, Paul, Paul, you don't understand. It's hard to do these things. Come on, Paul. It's really hard to be a faithful laborer, a good soldier. And then he reads those verses 8 all the way down there to 10 and says, Oh, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute, Paul. I remember those beatings. I remember the whipping. I remember your imprisonment. I remember that you're now writing me this letter from a dungeon awaiting execution. All for the sake of the elect. And he says, I think in his mind, he's reading and he's thinking, Paul, I I can do the hard things. I can. I can do it because I see the power of Christ doing it in you, giving you the strength, giving you the conviction, giving you the motivation to labor out of love for him and for us. You're giving me an example to follow. And you told me earlier in chapter 1 that you saw His work, His power, His Spirit at work in me, so I can do this too. The same Spirit dwells in me as dwells in you. Church, this is important. This is, this is a personal and powerful motivation for Timothy and for us here. Understand that he's telling him here, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 already, that God's going to give you the strength you need and the confidence you need at the right time to be the man or woman of God He's called you to be. Not for your sake, but for the sake of Christ and for the sake of those you're called to serve. I think Paul's testimony of Christ's love working through him in his suffering is a powerful motivation for all of us today when you think about it. I, I, I just am amazed at how God used his life and how he continued to persevere. And he did it because he knew that Christ was at work in him to do all his good pleasure. That's, that's something that should motivate us to sacrificially serve one another in the church. And sacrificially preserve the purity of the church. And sacrificially reveal the power of Christ to the lost. We can do it because Christ is at work in us. We see that in the Apostle Paul's testimony in his last words. Now, in chapter 3, Paul tells us why this is all so important. It's important to have tender correction and it's important to have personal motivation by looking to Jesus and the examples of those who followed him faithfully in the past. He tells us why it's important here. He says, we're living in the last days. And that that phraseology that he talks about here in chapter 3, last days, and the fact that we're here, he's talking about the times that we live in. He's talking about difficult times which means perilous seasons of life. Perilous seasons are coming, Timothy. Perilous seasons are coming, Sovereign Grace. And and you need to be ready. Be realistic as a Christian. All those who desire to live godly in this life will be persecuted for Christ. That's why in chapter 3 we we hear realistic expectations coming from Paul's lips and his last words. Paul gives us realistic expectations here in order to prepare us for the battles that we will face as Christians. Battles that you can't even imagine right now. Battles that you could never foresee, but they're there. They're going to come because there's an enemy who hates the one who's in you, the one that you serve. We see how he's preparing us to do this, to understand these expectations in verses 1 to 5. Let me read that to you. 
But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, seasons that are perilous. Here's what they're going to look like. And and church, I'm going to tell you this. If this doesn't say 2018 here, I can't imagine what would. The last days began when Christ ascended from earth into glory. And we're 2,000 years down the road. And this, this passage depicts our culture and our minds in our world today like no other. For people will be lovers of self. These, have, these people have inordinate love, okay? Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, loving themselves again, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And in the frightening verse, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. These are realistic expectations he's giving us here. These these last words of Paul here should awaken you to the reality of the spiritual battle that's all around us. People are murdering babies in their womb for convenience sake. Lovers of self. Lovers of pleasure. People are refusing to submit to the Savior who gave his life for sinners. Loving their sin more than Jesus. Perilous times. They want to appear upright. They want to appear godly. Yet they deny the power that can do that which comes through the gospel. He's giving us these realistic expectations because he knows we're going to be in a battle here. And we need to learn to unite around the truth. So we can fight by God's means of grace that are found in his word. The means of grace that we should be growing in to be tender in our correction. That we should be growing in as we personally motivate others in their ministry. And we need realistic expectations to persevere in the face of this kind of difficulty that's coming. And Paul's words there in verses 10 to 17, I think, are given to help us do this. To be prepared for this and be prepared with confidence. Look at what it says, 10 to 17. This was what will prepare you for the difficult times to come. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, while persecutions, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Oh, it's going to get bad, folks. But remember who's on your side. Remember who you represent. Remember who you serve. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not a possibility. That is a reality. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue or abide in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, the witness of the one you follow here as your example. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You got a good work, Timothy Church. You have a good work ahead of you, but it's going to be in a difficult situation. It's going to be a difficult place. You need to remember 
when the difficulties come, that you're not alone. You've got the word of God. You've got the spirit of Christ in you. Dark days are coming, but fear not. God's word will guide you. God's word will protect you. God's will will use you to work through the world to bring the light of the gospel of Christ. And just remember, church, when we see these times coming, when we see the times of difficulty, the times of discouragement and despair and heartache, when we see those coming, that darkness should not overwhelm us. That darkness may seem great around us, but don't forget that God's word is our light in this dark world. Remember that the light of Christ will only shine brighter in the darkness. Remember that Christ's servants then in the darkness will stand out if they hold forth the light. And that's good because the people in darkness can find us. We'll be a light of the truth to them. People in the darkness around us will have to ask us about the hope that lies within us. And we can tell them about Jesus. We can tell them that because they can see that as we go through a time and season of difficult days in our country, in our world, They know that we go through it differently. We have the hope that is eternal comforting us. We have the hope of God's word abiding in us, even in this darkness. They'll see that and they'll want to know why. Why can you do this? Why can you face this? We can tell them this is what Jesus did. He overcame darkness for us. They need to see that hope. And he tells us why in chapter 4. He tells us they they need to see it because they need to hear God speak. They need to see it in us, alive and at work in us. And you need to have biblical convictions if you're going to be able to declare it. In chapter 4, Paul's words are filled with biblical conviction. Church, we we need this desperately. We, We need biblical convictions to stand out in the darkness of this world and fulfill the ministry that we're called into. And where do we find those convictions? Well, he's told us in 3.16, the word of God, the scriptures. That's where our convictions are built from. But we need to have a conviction about the word of God. That's what he's going to tell Timothy here. These, these, these words we're going to read here in just a moment. These, these words are Holy Spirit inspired words of conviction. And that's why we should pay attention to what he says here. As he charges Timothy in the presence of God to preach the word. Look at verses 1 to 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. How often, Paul? Well, be ready in the difficult seasons. Be ready in the good seasons. He says, be ready in season and out of season. Here's what you do with it. You use the word of God to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. This is how you do it. This goes back to chapter 1. This is how you do it. You do it with complete patience, tender correction. And you do it with teaching, instruction. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Don't let that deter you. Don't let the difficult days deter you. Don't let the difficult people deter you. Keep doing it, Timothy. He says, as for you, always be sober minded about the world around you. That's what he's talking about. 
endure suffering that's going to come because of your witness for Christ and your service. Endure it. Do the work of a proclaimer. Speak the good news. Be an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your calling, your ministry. This is very important. Church, Christ's servants, all of you, are commanded and charged here with Timothy to preach the word when you interact with the darkness. Preach to the lost. Talk to them about Christ. Don't try to change the world by, by preaching social issues on the internet, on Facebook, on Twitter. You're not going to change it. It will do nothing but aggravate people. You're not called to preach social issues. You're not called to preach moralisms. You're called to hold forth the word of truth. Only the word of God can transform our society. And only the word of God can transform men morally. It's that that we have to hold forth. But we have to have a conviction that it can do that. We have to have a conviction that it can do that even in the midst of the darkness and those who refuse to hear it. Do you believe the word of God can do that? Well, let's think. What about a man on the road to Damascus? Did it there. Heard a testimony by Stephen. Jesus shows up. Oh, yeah, he was changed by the truth. Truth incarnate. You need to learn how to use the word, though, to do this. You have to have a conviction about it so that you can, you can do it properly. You need to have tender convictions in how you use this in your own convictions, okay? You need to have a, a tender approach to people. You need to do this personally. Facebook is not the place. Personally. You get into a debate on Facebook, call them. If they won't talk face-to-face, then end the discussion. Use the word of God to tenderly, personally, and carefully reprove and rebuke and exhort and do it with patience and do it with conviction because you trust that God will get glory through it and he'll accomplish all his purposes. We won't do that unless we actually believe the word of God is that powerful. We have to have a conviction about that. Do you believe that the word of God, the very word of God, you think it's able to rescue sinners? Well, I pray that you do. You're here. Do you have a firm conviction that it can actually sanctify wandering saints, weak saints? Yeah, I'm here. He's, he's doing that work in me through his word. It takes a deep biblical conviction to do this, though. It takes a deep conviction about the Bible, about the word of God, to do what Paul's telling Timothy to do here And it takes that same kind of conviction for you to do what God's called you to do here today. To do it with confidence and do it lovingly. Because if you do it with confidence and you do it with conviction and you do it with love, it's still going to cost you. It may cost you dearly. But even though it would cost Paul, and Paul knew it was going to cost him his own life, he's still writing this letter to Timothy, telling him how important it is for Timothy to keep doing the work because he's going to be gone in a few moments. Keep declaring the word, even if it costs you everything like it's costing me, Timothy. Keep doing it. Think about this. As he's writing these very words, he knows he's about to go outside and be executed for doing this. Yet he's convinced. This is how 
I can best glorify God, edify Christians, and evangelize the lost. It's by preaching the word in season and out, in difficult times and in good. And saints, I want you to know this as I conclude. that Even though the price for following God's word with conviction may be great, it may be astronomical, you may lose everything, including your life. I want you to know that the final reward is worth it. Paul was set loose to see Jesus and receive his final reward. And Paul would tell us the final reward is worth living and dying for. And he tells us that in his last words here in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Let me read that to you. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then he says this to give hope to Timothy and to us. And not only to me, not only to the one who does these spectacular things, these unique things, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you. That's me. We're not going to be the Apostle Paul. That's not repeatable. It's not necessary. We have the word of God. But he's saying to us and to Timothy. Let me tell you, at the end of my life, here's what I know. I've got a victory song. Here's my victory song. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith and I'm awaiting the reward from Jesus, the redeemer of my soul. These are words of final victory. And I pray that as you seek to apply the very words that we have read today in your own life, that these words of victory, this word of praise to God and hope in the gospel will be on your lips when you face your last day. That they won't be unless you have a biblical conviction about the word of God. That it is the very word of God to give you life and to give hope to the lost. I would encourage you to spend time in it. Rejoice in the truth and reflect on the power of the gospel in the Apostle Paul's life. And that same power is able to equip you to be Christ's servants here today presently. Be encouraged by that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to quickly survey these famous last words of the Apostle Paul that you inspired for our edification and our encouragement. I pray as we look into the Apostle Paul's life and we see in it the work of Jesus that began on the road to Damascus and was completed in glory. We pray, God, that we would see in Paul's life that love for Jesus that we all want and we all have by your grace, but we want to express more faithfully. We pray that you would help us do that through our tender correction of one another. We pray that you would help us to do that through our personal motivation of one another. And, and, and through, Lord, and even through the realistic expectations of what we're going to face together. And Lord, we pray that you would eventually work that down deep into us by giving us deeper convictions about the truth that will equip us to do the work of the ministry as your servants here on earth today. I thank you for each one here today. I pray that you would edify their souls, that you would encourage them to 
to go harder and go faster in this race to glorify Jesus, I pray in his name. Amen.